Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 32 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. Today, we're going to begin our first out of maybe two or even three shows that are going to cover exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. This is a type of investment fund, which is a theme that we've been discussing ever since episode 23. So as we now know, there are thousands of investment funds out there, many of which are good income-producing opportunities, and ETFs are just one of the many options. However, they are one of the most popular assets for both retail and institutional investors, so I think a lot of people will find this information to be pretty applicable to their own portfolios. So during the course of the next 15 minutes or so, we're going to look at ETFs from a broader, more conceptual standpoint. We'll cover what they are, how long they've been around for, and what they're meant to do. The following week, we'll specifically get into ETFs that pay income and dividends to their investors. I just want to first make sure that we're all on the same page, since this is a new topic. Our podcast is picking up a lot of steam, so I'm assuming that there are some first-time listeners right now. If you are one of them, welcome and thank you very much for joining. My name is Alexis Asadi, I'm your host. And we are here to discuss any sort of investment that can produce income, preferably on a monthly basis, but sometimes quarterly too. So the first nine episodes of the Income Investing Podcast concentrated on something called real estate investment trusts or REITs. Then the following 12 episodes were about mortgage lending, and we are now obviously on investment funds. Most of our listeners are in the US and Canada and the UK, but I'm grateful for anyone who's tuning in. Now, people like us appreciate income-producing assets for at least four reasons. First, we can use the income to offset some of our daily expenses. Some people even reach a point where the cash flow replaces their expenses altogether, and that's a stage known as financial freedom or financial independence. Alternatively, you can reinvest the dividends and therefore compound your returns. We don't just have to sit on our hands and wait for the prices to rise. However, second, many income-producing investments can also appreciate in value. They are not just reduced to generating cash flow. So as we're going to see, that is the case with ETFs. Third, there is an abundance of opportunity. You can earn passive income in real estate, in natural resources, energy, financial services, utilities, equities, debts, on the stock market, and off the stock market. And fourth, but definitely not finally, Many of these assets are quite affordable. For example, a lot of ETFs can be purchased for under $100. Okay, so let's recap some of the main takeaways about investment funds. It'll just take a couple minutes. So a fund is a business that pools money from investors and then deploys it into various assets. As we've seen thus far, it might be into real estate or mortgages, but it could literally be invested into anything. It really all depends on the fund's objective or more formally known as its mandate. The mandate that we're most interested in here is to produce income. So there are plenty of investment funds that exist solely for the purpose of generating cash flow, but a fund might seek growth, aggressive growth, capital preservation, or otherwise. The fund will also be governed by a management team that's usually going to be compensated by a fee based on its assets under management. This is also known as AUM. The fund will generally be structured as a trust or a limited partnership or a corporation. 
Now, in many cases, the fund will have several classes or series of shares. Each class or series might charge different management fees or give investors different entitlements to earnings. So it's actually a pretty important concept to pay attention to. Some funds are privately held, while others are available on the public markets. However, both will often share similar features. Once in a while, I like to go on a bit of a tangent and talk about related subjects. So the week after our episode about mortgage funds, I talked about entities like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the Canada Housing Trust. And basically, we looked at how the federal government in both the US and Canada supports their respective real estate and mortgage markets. We then explored real estate funds, which, as you can guess, are funds that invest in real estate. And then from there, we spent another two episodes on something called single asset real estate companies. These are businesses that are formed to invest in one property rather than in a basket of properties or property companies. So these are not technically investment funds, but they are comprised of a group of investors who pool their money to buy real estate. So I figured it'd be an appropriate time to discuss them. And so here we are today, right about to explore a different kind of fund altogether, the Exchange Traded Fund or ETF. As we're going to see, it is quite common to have mortgage and real estate funds and basically any other fund that is also an ETF. But before we jump in any further, let's get to a question from one of our listeners. As always, please feel free to reach out to me at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. So today's question comes from Nate, who is in Montreal, Quebec, and he wrote me the following. Hey, Alexis, two related questions. For single asset real estate investments, how does the manager determine how much profit the investors get? Your example last week showed investors getting between 12 and 16% on their money before the manager earned any profits. How does the manager determine that amount? And what is a good amount for investors to receive? So Nate, this is a very good question, and it totally depends on who is putting the deal together. There isn't a rule that has to be followed. But in general, the company offering the investment opportunity is going to want to make as much money as possible while still making it attractive to investors. So in last week's example, the company probably determined that paying investors between 12 and 16% would be pretty appealing in today's market. I think a lot of people would be thrilled with those kinds of returns. But if we lived in a time where making 16% was too low, and that time did once upon a time exist, then that company would have likely had to rethink its profit sharing structure. It really depends on what the market demands. When I say market, I mean market in a capitalistic sense, not necessarily in terms of the stock market. Now, in terms of what's fair, that is a pretty difficult question to answer. It really depends on your personal preferences, including your own tolerance for risk. In my case, I would have not invested in last week's deal because I thought it was a little bit too risky for what I might be getting, but that may not be true for someone else. I wouldn't necessarily think about it in terms of how much money the manager should make. Like I pointed out last week, the manager is doing a lot of work. The company is building 100 different townhouses and should be paid fairly. Rather, I'd say, how much money should I make based on the risks involved? All right, so Nate, thanks for your question and also for listening to the Income Investing Podcast. Now let's get on to the topic of today's discussion, the Exchange Traded Fund or ETF. So an ETF is an investment fund that trades on the stock market. It raises money from investors by selling its shares or its units on a stock exchange, like the NYSE, the New York Stock Exchange, or the TSX, the Toronto Stock Exchange. 
it then deploys that capital into various securities like dividend paying companies or technology firms or real estate and so on. ETFs are similar to any stock that you might buy in that their values fluctuate frequently, you can purchase them through a broker, and you can sell them whenever you want. An investor's experience with an ETF is exactly as it would be when purchasing shares in, for instance, Bank of America or Manulife. You just log into your brokerage account, select your ETF, and then pay the trading fee. So when you buy and when you sell. If the ETF pays dividends, then you can either choose to automatically reinvest them or have them paid into your brokerage account. So for all intents and purposes, an ETF is a stock. Now, ETFs have been around in the US and in Europe since the 1990s. The majority of them are designed to give investors low cost access to some sort of index. So this is one of the main takeaways for today. For example, the classic ETF would be one that tries to copy the performance of the New York Stock Exchange. The manager invests the ETF's money across that market, aiming to replicate its activity. If the New York Stock Exchange goes up, then so would the ETF. If it goes down, then the ETF would too. The only difference is that the ETF would pay management fees. So for that reason, it can't perfectly replicate the index. So depending on what it's trying to follow, an ETF could have tens, hundreds, or even thousands of underlying investments. And for that reason, they can be great vehicles for diversification. Since most ETFs simply try to track an index, they are not actively managed. They might be rebalanced maybe once every quarter or once every half year, but the management team is not buying and selling assets throughout the day. As such, the fees associated with ETFs can be pretty minuscule. Right now, the average management fee for one is 0.44% per year. In contrast, actively managed funds can have fees of 3% and more. However, it will obviously depend on the individual fund. There is no rule. But as you already know, the lower the fees, the more money there is for investors. And so ETFs are pretty conducive to producing as much uh, return as possible for their shareholders and unit holders. Now, in 2008, the US government allowed the introduction of actively managed ETFs. However, most of these still have relatively low fees. Some of the most expensive ones have management fees of around 1% it can be pretty hard for them to compete otherwise. Right now, there are over 1,800 ETFs out there, so there is at least one for just about anything you can imagine. Were you enticed by our discussions about real estate funds and mortgage funds? Well, there are real estate and mortgage ETFs out there, like the Vanguard Real Estate ETF or the iShares MBS ETF. Do you want exposure to green energy companies? Well, if you do, then there's the First Trust NASDAQ Clean Edge Green Energy ETF. That's a mouthful. Or what about technology stocks? Well, there is the Technology Select Sector Spider Fund. Or maybe you're looking for financial services companies that pay large dividends. If that's the case, then you could consider the Invesco KBW High Dividend Yield Financial ETF. That, by the way, pays monthly and is one of the highest paying income ETFs today. Or perhaps you want some currency exposure. Maybe you want to follow the Japanese yen. If you do, then you could buy into the ProShares Ultra Yen ETF. By the way, I've listed all of these ETFs in the podcast description, so don't worry about trying to catch the exact names while I'm discussing them. So the exchange traded fund was a revolutionary product in the investment world. Between 1993 and 2015, over $2 trillion has been invested in them in the United States alone. They are a favorite among investors like you and me, people who search for income, because there are tons of ETFs that cater to that. Some have specific mandates to produce high revenue for investors, 
Others just happen to produce revenue because their underlying assets pay dividends. And we're going to cover all of this next week. Now, one thing about ETFs is that they can often employ complex investing strategies, making them a home to interesting alternative assets. For example, there is such thing as an inverse ETF, which tries to do the opposite of what an index does. One like the ProShares Short Oil and Gas ETF uses a range of short positions and derivatives to do the exact opposite of the Dow Jones US Oil and Gas Index. If you want to make money when oil and gas prices go down, then this would be the type of fund that would do that. There's also the Direction Daily CSI 300 China Inverse ETF, which tries to counter the Chinese Securities Index. So if the Chinese stock market goes down, then this fund goes up. Another interesting ETF is the ProShares Short Basic Materials ETF, which moves backwards of companies that produce aluminum, steel, non-ferrous materials, commodity chemicals, specialty chemicals, uh, forest products, paper products, as well as the mining of precious metals and coal. Further, there are leveraged ETFs. These try to track an index, but multiple times over. So for example, there's an ETF called the Direction Daily Semiconductor Bull and Bear 3X Shares. That's another mouthful. Uh, that one tries to mimic the PHLX Semiconductor Sector Index by 300%. This index has companies that are involved in the design, distribution, manufacture, and sale of semiconductors. So if that index goes up, then the ETF will try to triple that. If it goes down, then the ETF will get hit very hard. There's also the Direction Daily S&P Biotech Bear 3X Shares. This one tries to do 300% of a select group of biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies. So leveraged ETFs are essentially a very, very aggressive way of investing in a certain index. Now, one of the distinctions between an ETF and a mutual fund is that mutual funds cannot employ these kinds of strategies. Their scope of investing is much narrower. We're going to talk about mutual funds a bit more later on. They are the traditional competitor of ETFs. Another distinction is that you can trade ETFs by the minute, since they are on the stock market. However, when you buy a mutual fund, which are not on stock exchanges, you do so at whatever price it happens to be at at the end of the day. Done correctly, you can purchase undervalued ETFs and therefore potentially realize a capital gain later on. Now, ETFs come with all of the risks of any other investment fund. We talked about those between episodes 23, 24, and 25, so I'm not going to rehash it here. But one criticism of ETFs is that not all of them replicate their index that well. A study in 2009 showed that they, on average, missed their targets by 1.25%. However, this number is a little bit aggressive because the main offenders were ETFs that invested in less liquid assets like emerging market companies and junk bonds. So basically what I'd like you to remember is that if you're considering an exotic ETF, then it may not track your index perfectly. So a few weeks ago, one of our listeners, Kirk, had asked that I cover some ETFs with substantial histories of paying out income. So I'm going to do that on next week's episode. So please make sure that you tune in. Otherwise, I think we're going to wrap it up here. In the meantime, I encourage you to check out my new program called the Market Intelligence Report. On the first and on the 15th day of each month, I release an audio recording that discusses the major news, political, and legal events that income investors and income-oriented entrepreneurs should be aware of. I started it because there are topics that I want to discuss on this podcast that don't really fit in. My goal for the Income Investing Podcast is for somebody to be able to tune in to an episode like this one, maybe five or 10 years from now, and still find the material to be relevant. So I don't talk a lot about current events. 
On the other hand, the market intelligence report goes over the here and now. It's meant for today's investors. So I encourage you to check it out at alexisasadi.net slash market. Otherwise, thanks so much for spending your time with me, and I will see you next Wednesday.